There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Well, good evening, my friends. Welcome to September. Hope back to school was smooth for you. Indeed, it was a different experience, I must say, this year for my family as they headed back to school. My middle son is off to Western, and it's a delight to have our guest, Lauren Kumar, Executive Vice President, Head of Global Real Estate uh, with Granite Property, Granite REIT. It's a stock Jack and I have held for clients for a number of years. Uh, formerly, it was the Magna Real Estate uh, was spun out into a separate entity. Uh, Coomer is, is a veteran uh, in the, uh, Mr. Coomer, I should say, a veteran in the uh, space of real estate, also has a Bachelor of Arts Business and Men from the Richard Ivey School of Business, University of Western Ontario. And uh, Jack, you're also a graduate from Western, just dropping my son off into his dormitory. I, I Honestly, I almost thought I dropped him off in a jail cell. Uh, I, I didn't have that experience, but uh, boy, that's, that, that's tough living first-year students have to experience it. <laughs> so just in the interest of that piece of real estate, um, Lauren, how was, did, did you stay on residence and you have yourself a uh, basic hospital mat and a hospital mattress in a small little uh, room? Well, actually, uh, and thanks for having me on, uh, gentlemen. Um, I, uh, I, I guess I date myself because I was there in the late 80s. Uh, but I was actually at University of Toronto for my first year, and then uh, a bunch of us transferred over to Western. And so we actually stayed in uh, uh, off-campus. We were at a place called the Limberlost Townhouses, which kind of almost was its own little village of, uh, of undergraduates. So uh, I never got to Soggy Maitland Hall and some of those exciting places. I certainly visited them, but uh, we, had, we had some fun too, just uh, where we were as well. So. Um, it would be interesting to go and visit it and, uh, and see what's changed there. Well, if you do, uh, and, and Jack, if you drop one of your kids off at Western, make sure you buy yourself the T-shirt that says Western Dad. Uh, yeah, there's a lot, of passion, a lot of passion in that uh, campus, and I was very, very impressed by it all. And again, uh, Jack, my partner, uh, studied economics at Western as well. Uh, good to have you, of course, on the show, Jack. And good job uh, bringing Lauren Kumar, Executive Vice President, Head of Global Real Estate with uh, Granite Properties on the show. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have an alumni on, and he's got a lot of valuable insights with the, the real estate market, for sure, Wolf. Well, again, uh, gentlemen, I, I will share with you the first stock I ever bought. I was at Ryerson. I stayed local and uh, took the subway downtown, went to Ryerson, uh, of which they're going to be changing the name. I don't know what's going to happen to my diploma. I guess I have to get rid of that and uh, get the new one. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, um, the first stock I ever bought was Magna, and the year was uh, 1985. The price was on the TSX uh, 29 and a quarter, between 29 and a quarter and 29 and three eighths. That's right, they were talking teenies back then, if you recall that, Mr. Kumar. Uh, but so much has changed with that company, it's remarkable because it, it almost went bankrupt in, in the early 90s, as, as, as you gentlemen know, and it continued uh, to, to power ahead. And then, of course, there was a changing of the guard and uh, uh, incredible, incredible success story. Um, and it, it really is it's just a brilliant company that continues to succeed internationally. Uh, so, Lauren, uh, share with us the story behind and, and the the history of the uh, mag, uh, the Granite Property um, uh, Company, uh, formerly uh, the, the real estate arm of Magna. Give us the history on it and then the strategy on a go-forward basis. Sure. Uh, happy to. So, 
as you uh, alluded to, um, Granite used to be uh, known as MI Developments, which was Magna International Developments, and we were the real estate division of Magna. And so, as you can imagine, with Magna growing the way they were, there was constant need for new factories or leasing new factories or building new factories. And so, uh, a big chunk of that responsibility would fall on the real estate division. And then uh, a decision was made corporately uh, in 2003 to spin off the real estate company into a separate public company. So that occurred in 2003, but the founder, Frank Stronach, uh, uh, remained the chairman and controlling shareholder of the company. So although it was a separate public company, it really was still controlled, just like Magna, by, uh, by Frank Stronach, the founder. Um, that continued until... 2010, when Frank Stronach decided to give up control of MI Developments, and that, that transaction occurred in 2011. And at that time, really, it was transformational for the company. At that point, uh, basically, an entire new set of directors went in. Most of the senior management uh, had left, and, uh, and we started up again. And that, it was at that time that we converted to a REIT. We changed the name to Granite, and people ask me sometimes, "What's why Granite?" And we just said, "Well, it was just one of the names that still was available, quite frankly." And we thought it was a, a good uh, a good way to say a solid company with a good balance sheet. So we adopted Granite, and there was really no magic behind it from there. Um, and it was really the critical point was at that point we also decided to develop our new strategy. And you know the good thing about the strategy is is it really it's 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 changed a bit, but it's really pretty much been the same since 2011. And that was you know we recognize and we still do to this day firmly believe in the adoption and the uh, expansion of e-commerce uh, within the uh, the global markets. And as a result of that, we firmly believe that there will continue to be a strong demand for warehouse distribution type space in key distribution markets. And so it was pretty simple in that we decided that's what we want to do. We want to research and come up with what we think are the, uh, the strong distribution markets, both in Canada, U.S., and in Europe, where we, uh, we have existing, uh, um, existing product, and, and try and buy best-in-product uh, buildings in those places. And so, you know, that was the that was the uh, on the uh, uh, acquisition side, and then we also recognized that, you know, uh, and you you alluded to at the beginning of the call was that, you know, Magna's a great company. They're very solid. They're an A minus credit rating, um, but as a as a public REIT, uh, you know, when we were spun out, we had close to a hundred percent. I think it was about ninety seven percent of our revenue was derived by Magna in automotive, which obviously isn't the greatest diversification strategy. And so the the object was, is we, you know, obviously we needed to reduce our concentration in Magna. And we can do that either by acquiring new and diluting what we had, uh, as well as uh, selling some of the Magna stuff. So we, we, you know, we probably sold over a billion dollars worth of Magna property over the last three to four years. Nothing to do with Magna itself, but just trying to re- you know, reposition the portfolio and diversify it more um, than where it was before. So that's really been the uh, the exercise. And to give you a couple a couple uh, stats, because um, I thought you might ask this question. I mean, I can compare to the 11, 2011 spin out 
to basically June of this year. We were 94% of our square footage was Magna in 11. It's now 25%. Um, our, our, our total square footage in 11 was about 28 million, and we're over 50 million right now. And the other thing that you know we've also, which I'm proud of, that we've maintained over the course of this transformation, is you know is keeping a strong balance sheet. You know we had about a 11% net leverage in 11, and we're at about 20 now. So despite all the acquisitions that we've done, we've managed to maintain you know a strong industry-leading balance sheet at the same time. When it comes to real estate, there is really nothing more important than a strong balance sheet that gives you longevity and the ability to, of course, take advantage of opportunities. And again, your company has acquired, according to the research I have here uh, from Mark Rothschild, a can, of course, our analyst who covers the company, uh, that your company has acquired uh, north of $2 billion of properties uh, really over the last two years. So that, that certainly is an aggressive move. But um, if you're just tuning into the show, we're talking about uh, REITs right now, real estate investment trusts, uh, specifically Granite REIT, which is the real estate division um, if you're interested in REITs, and they are, I think, a good part of a portfolio, they provide stability, they provide cash flow, they are a play on interest rates as well. Um, but there are three flavors, three broad flavors of REITs. There's residential REITs, there's office REITs, and there's industrial REITs. And, and residential REITs, where people live, uh, are, 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 are at full capacity, they have pricing power, they're a good business model, and they're expensive. Industrial REITs, which Granite is, um, is, is a REIT that has been in high demand, uh, as uh, Mr. Kumar has alluded to, due to technology, due to digital purchases, uh, hence requiring uh, inf uh, uh, infrastructure and, and warehousing and just-in-time uh, logistics uh, to make it all happen uh, in light speed as we, of course, click and purchase, want the, the item at our doorstep within 24 hours. So uh, the close point to purchases is, of course, key. But the, the, the office REIT division uh, is the one that uh, I think stands out as uh, somewhat questionable. Um, you don't have any office exposure, I take it, uh, in, in Granite REIT, do you, Lauren? Uh, but can you certainly speak to the sector and, and, and what, what you're hearing uh, about uh, the return to office, the vacancy rates in office, and, and the longer-term opportunity? Will some of these offices be uh, converted, similar to some shopping malls being converted into perhaps warehouses? Well, uh, you're correct. I mean, we really don't have office. Uh, I'm probably not the, the, the person you'd want to necessarily ask that question to. But, you know, I, I will say that, um, you know, we, we've been having the same questions as I think a lot of people in that. And we, in our office, we have offices in downtown Toronto, and we also have offices in Dallas, Texas, and, and Amsterdam, and uh, Vienna, Austria. But, you know, our Toronto office is our headquarters. We have about 35 people there. And, um, you know, we, we, we are, um, have been looking at the office market here. And, you know, face rates on, on the downtown buildings haven't really changed much. They're mostly institutionally owned, and they've been holding their rates. There were some sublets that were out on the market for a while. Those have been taken up. Um, and so I, I'm just not sure, and I don't think really most of the companies, I've heard a lot of companies are now postponing the September return to work to later in the year or maybe even January of next year. I think there's still a lot of questions about vaccination policies and masking policies. And, you know, I think right now with the market so strong on the real estate side, especially, I mean, you know, keeping talent is very important. And I think, you know, people are, are certainly 
trying to understand like what's the right balance for people and you know so we've heard you know uh, flexible work weeks and maybe there's a reduction in the overall square footage a company needs but then we also are hearing that you know you need more space per person because of social distancing so you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people, and to be honest with you, I, I don't have really any consensus yet on where that goes. I think long term, I think I'm hopeful, I'm one of the optimistics that COVID's no different than SARS and some of the other ones. I mean, we will get past it, and I think people are just social creatures to begin with, and having interaction in the office, I think, is a, a critical component. But I do think there's there there may be some fundamental shift to having some sort of hybrid uh, workforce. We're talking real estate. Uh, Lauren Kumar, Executive Vice President, Head of Global Real Estate with Granite Reek. Brilliant discussion. Uh, blue chip company. Uh, Hi-Fi Radio, Global News 640 in Toronto. Going to get right back to the discussion with Lauren right after this. Money. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. All the Welcome back to the show, my friends. It is Hi-Fi Radio. Back to school. Time to get serious. We're talking money, of course. The show's all about helping you have more of it. Uh, Granite REIT is a company that uh, Jack and I have held in our client portfolios for a number of years now. Uh, Jack, I think we're in the stock below 40, aren't we? I'm just looking at it here, Wolf. It was uh, 2016 that we bought it, and uh, 43 was the in- initial purchase price. And then we added to the name a little bit. We've collected a handsome three and a half to five percent dividend, depending on the month the stock was trading. And now the stock is eighty-five buck. You know, almost a double. Uh, what uh, you said, two thousand sixteen, Jack. So five years, not bad. Plus a divvy. Uh, that's the type of investment. Slow, steady, Eddie wins the race. Um, Granite Reed, of course, is a, a very different company. I think uh, when we purchased the company, Lauren, you would know this in 2016. At that point, I think your company had about 50 or 55% exposure to Magnet. Now it's about 25%, as you alluded to. But the space of big real estate is interesting uh, because that's really what you are. It's, 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 it's about size. It's about scale. Uh, and there are many ways to get exposure to real estate, both directly and indirectly. You know, a couple of quality blue chip names in the United States, and that's, of course, where the bigger land grabs take place. A company called Prologix REIT. Jack and I used to own it. It's all about logistics, moving inventory. Uh, and a private equity company we own, Blackstone. Uh, they, too, have a big real estate arm, some of the smartest men on Bay Street. Uh, but here at home, uh, of course, uh, Granite REIT, uh, it, it's a, a Great name, a stock I do uh, continue to uh, support. And uh, Lauren Kumar, uh, head of global real estate, uh, spending some time with us this evening. Um, uh, Lauren, why don't we continue on the uh, the point about e-commerce? Because your business really uh, is built around e-commerce, around logistics. And you know, as you drive through this province, we're all seeing more and more massive warehouses. Uh, and what, what I'm also noticing, and when you speak about this, uh, in terms of real estate, in terms of people, uh, the Durham region, residential real estate, 
has popped big time. And again, if you have these big warehouses, you have to make sure you have people close enough to them with transport to be able to work inside them. And that was a big concern around Amazon and all their distribution systems as well. So uh, please speak just with the trends and, and, and the key areas um, that your sector is, is, is vying for land uh, because they think it's strategic for the next 10 or 20 years playing off of this e-commerce trend. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, back to our fundamental strategy about e-commerce and, and the adoption of it. Um, and, that, and that ties in also even with COVID. I mean, you know, I, I look at COVID and, uh, you know, COVID for, you know, for a big chunk of the world was basically a forced exercise in, in online purchasing. And, you know, if you look at any of the any of the graphics that track it, there was a sharp spike in online purchases through COVID. It's settled down a bit, a little bit now as um, as the economies open up, but it's staying at a significantly higher rate than it was before. So, you know, there is some permanent adoption of uh, of online uh, purchases uh, as a result of COVID. But um, you know, CBRE uh, has some had some interesting stats that I thought I'd share with you. Um, they had done a study on e-commerce, and this was on the global retail market, and they said that basically in 2015, about eight percent of all purchases were online. You move that to 2020, and the 8% goes to 18%. And so you can see there's a significant change. And they looked at about 27 different countries. Canada was at just under 15%, and they expect by 2025 to be in the 20 to 25% range. So again, you know, it comes back, and a lot of people ask me, well, you know, is this a short-term phenomenon, you know, how long is this going to go? And, you know, we really believe, and based on all the numbers we've seen, that uh, there is still a long runway for a continued online adoption of purchases. And, uh, you know, there's been some some conversations about, you know, well, what is, what is a billion dollars in, in incremental uh, uh, online uh, purchases translate into demand for logistics space? And they think it's about... 1.25 million square feet. So they give you one one idea. I mean, the the incremental increase in e-commerce sales that CBRE was projecting between 20 and 25 was about 1.5 trillion dollars, and that would translate into about another 1.5 billion square feet of logistics space. And when you you know, and that's worldwide. But when you think about you know, you're talking about really more of the First world countries, U.S., North America, place like that. That's where the high concentration is. That's not even including just general increase in demand for industrial in, uh, across the board. This is just for logistics. So, again, back to what I said with our strategy. I mean, we believe that there is uh, still uh, a tremendous demand over the next uh, three to five years uh, as uh, people continue to adopt uh, online purchases. We're talking to Lauren Kumar. He's the head of global real estate with Granite. Reet, uh, Jack, you had a question for Lauren? I just want to pivot on what uh, Lauren was talking about there. And with the logistics, Lauren, um, what are you seeing in the, the rural areas? Because my parents are up in Muskoka. My, like my dad's actually using Amazon Prime right now. So are you seeing like additional demand for secondary markets? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I would say that, uh, and uh, just to step back for a second, I mean, you know, when we, when we, you know, you have your traditional A markets that you think of, you know, in Canada, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, U.S., it's more, a lot of coastal markets, L.A., New York, uh, and there are secondary markets um, 
traditionally, the Indianapolis's, the Louisville's, the Cincinnati's, places like that. You know, when we look at those markets, and we are firm believers in some of those traditionally B markets, when you look at the, why those markets have become very strong distribution markets, it's because you look at the infrastructure of what's there, whether they're freight terminals or they're air hubs or they're near ports, Savannah, Georgia, for example, or strong road networks. And then you look at, you know, a day's drive time for trucks and where they can hit, you know, 50, 60 percent of the U.S. population a day's drive. All of a sudden, I really consider these markets not B markets anymore. I call them 1A markets. And so an example of one where we had is, is uh, town called Plainfield, Indiana, which is right near the airport in Indianapolis, if you've ever been in there. And, uh, you know, Plainfield, you know, was a, a smaller local community beside the airport. And that's basically filled up now with industrial. And they're starting now, they're, now you're starting to see people going a half hour, 45 minutes, even an hour outside of that community uh, in order to find land and continue to take advantage of the strategic location. And I don't know if you follow, recently we just uh, announced, we just bought 92 acres in Brantford, Ontario. And, you know, I mean, if, if you asked me five years ago if I would be, you know, considering looking at buying 92 acres of land for logistics in Brantford, Ontario, I probably would have said no. But, um, you know, again, uh, Brantford, the location, the, uh, the, the price of land versus the, the, the GTA proper is significantly less. You've got a strong labor base with Hamilton and the surrounding area close to the U.S. border. Uh, and there's companies are starting to look at Brantford and going there. So the answer to your question is yes. I mean, some of these secondary or you know more rural markets, um, I think, can really benefit uh, if the if the city or the town gets behind them, they get uh, they get the proper zoning in place and they can free up some land for industrial. I think that there's uh, some tremendous opportunities for buildings, increasing their tax bases, and and obviously adding uh, quality jobs. Well, again, when I came, uh, drove to London, gentlemen, I, uh, uh, I was surprised uh, as to the amount of uh, business activity uh, beyond the university nature uh, of the town uh, that, took, that takes place in London. Then I asked my wife what the population was, and uh, we were both surprised, uh, 370,000 people in, in London, uh, which used, by the way, used to be the t uh, test marketing capital of Canada because of its uh, uh, population demographic, psychographic base. They felt there was a good representation of the broad country. Um, uh, here you are, uh, uh, Lauren, uh, you know, developing the portfolio of real estate. And uh, you, you have a facility in Germany that's a redevelopment project. You have a, a couple of uh, uh, development projects in Texas. Uh, you're in Tennessee, uh, develop, or expansion project in uh, uh, Mississauga and in Ajax. Um, again, what I like about this um, as an investor is you are diversified, not just by uh, client, i.e. no longer concentrated with Magna, but you're also nicely diversified um, by country and some geography. Uh, uh, Frank Stronach, of course, being a, a, a former Austrian citizen, uh, I, I smiled when you said, yeah, you still have an office in Vienna. I, by the way, would vote to have you go work in Vienna. What a beautiful place that is, my goodness me. Um, but in terms of the, uh, the, the, the space in Germany versus the space in Texas, uh, what, what are these two facilities being used for? So, I mean, uh, you know, you, you, you picked on a, on a good topic, I mean, development. And, you know, as a REIT, you know, we, 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 we only can do so much development. Um, but, you know, what's happened is, you know, as a result of COVID, 
um, and you know people having a, a chance to look at the various real estate asset classes as we've talked about you know industrial has really you know was unfazed by covid in fact it's it's probably you know benefited from that perspective for us it's been a little more challenging just because you know a lot of companies are reallocating to industrial and so there's more players in the market cap rates on 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 uh, investment properties continue to compress so it's getting challenging and so your yields uh you know you're 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 chasing lower yields and it's getting tougher and tougher to get there. So, you know, we decided, you know, one opportunity is, is, is to focus a little bit more on development where, you know, you can, you can build to, you know, six, 6% yields. And then there's some really good NAV creation once you stabilize those assets. And so, you know, through a combination of either acquiring sites, doing some joint ventures or taking existing sites. And the, you highlighted one is in Germany. Um, you know, that was an old Magna building. One of the few where Magna left the building. Uh, and it's in the Stuttgart region of Germany. And there's just, if, you, if you've ever been there, it's very hilly. And there's just nothing left. There's no land available. So for us to be able to build a state-of-the-art, roughly 300,000 square foot logistics building, um, you know, there, there really is no competition. If anyone wants a building in that area, we're the building. So it's all about trying to improve our yields uh, as well. And uh, by doing development and creating NAV for the company, and so you know we've got well over a couple hundred million in the uh, in the pipeline to go. And also, as you mentioned, you know we're geographically uh, uh, dispersed. And the nice thing about you know doing stuff in this in the U.S. especially is is that you know the price of land in the U.S. in most of the markets we're in is significantly less. I mean, you can buy stuff in the hundreds of thousands an acre as opposed to right now in you know the GTA market. Um, you know, land is anywhere from two to three million an acre. So it's a big difference as far as uh, tying up your capital on uh, development exercises. Uh, Lauren Kumar, I can't thank you enough. Executive Vice President, Head of Global Real Estate uh, with Granite REIT. Um, keep up the good work. Uh, we'll, we'll maintain our long position, clip our divvy, and uh, feel comfortable that we have good stewards, uh, people like you, uh, of our wealth. At Type by Radio, we're going to speak with Sandy McIntyre. Uh, a student of the business, uh, chief strategist uh, with uh, CI Investments, uh, right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of will and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul. It is Hi-Fi Radio, my friends. Got Sandy McIntyre on the line. Sandy has 40 years of experience in the financial industry. Uh, he's inspired his colleagues, advises people like Jack and I uh, with his wisdom and, and, and expertise. He's an avid student still of the market, and he still remains a uh, uh, member of the CI investment team. Uh, of course, formerly Sandy was with uh, Century Investments. Uh, he's a philanthropist. Uh, and he has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Toronto, which is very nice. Uh, of course, Sandy, I'm just, uh, all kids now want to go out of town for school. No one wants to stay home. Um, I really scratched my head. Uh, but, hey, it is about the experience. So, Sandy, uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Jack, thanks for getting Sandy online. Uh, Sandy, uh, like me, uh, you're a music fan. And uh, in your prelude to, hey, what, what we're going to chat about today, you mentioned you want to talk about 
process and style of music uh, being one and the same. So Sandy, right out of the gate, please speak to that. Speak to style, speak to process and how it matters really in so many things in life, music and investing. Um, first off, I'm, I'm no longer a member of the CI team. Uh, they do keep in touch with me, but uh, I'm officially retired. Uh, and having led teams uh, for many years, a great example in the music industry of a team where egos destroyed process is Pink Floyd, where you've got Roger Waters, um, and uh, I mean, a brain freeze, the guitarist, David, David Gilmore, Gilmore. Yep. Um, at, at Eagle Odds, and effectively running separate versions of what is called Pink Floyd. Uh, in contrast to that, you have the most durable rock band, um, the Rolling Stones, where, again, you've got very disparate personalities um, you know the the gentleman Charlie Watts and uh, the flamboyant uh, Keith Richards um, surviving within an organization for 50 year plus years that, that's they buy into what they're doing they recognize the value of different approaches and choose to work within the team environment. Now, I've had investment teams where people buy into the process, and I've had members of the team who didn't buy into the process. And we, we actually made some tough choices to elevate team over individual. And it ended up getting better results. And, you know, you, you could say that, you know, Sandy, you're an egotist, but uh, I was the, at times, the most important person on the team. And I never put my interests as my sole goal. I always put the interests of the organization as my sole goal. And it showed up in the results for our clients. You know, when I joined the business, um, an individual said, Wolf, as long as you stick to your process, your clients will make money. And I had to really uh, contemplate and think about what he said to me at that point in time. That was 20 years ago about the importance of process. And I became aware of it. I was ignorant of it entering the business. I quickly became aware of it. And Sincerely, I have been developing my process uh, alongside Jack Hartle and my entire team, and you are part of my team, Sandy, for 20 years. Um, it, I, it is not complete. Um, it is slowly evolving. But So, Sandy, share with us um, the, the process that you built and developed and some of the key tenets, things that you just wouldn't steer away from that were absolutely fundamental to your process. I had a conversation with my older boy yesterday uh, who's doing some renovations at home, um, and he got talking to me about price inflation. Hmm. And one of the things that I, I sort of laugh about is 
CPI, as it's measured, is a basket of goods and services that is representative of no individual's price inflation. Um, but it is a u- useful tool for um, income, sorry, CPI linked contracts. Um, and I, I think that they consciously want to keep stated CPI low. Now, the point of this is bad money drives out good money. You found this back in the days of King John. Uh, you found this in the days post-Napoleonic War. You found it in the Weimar Republic in Germany. Uh, what we're seeing is a rapid increase in money supply and price increases. Now, I, I, I tend to invest it with the concept of decades. And what I'm looking for are businesses that have pricing power that can pass on the increased costs of their inputs to the people who need to buy their goods and services. Now, the basket of needed goods and services is changing. And a great example of this is we're talking about phasing out coal as a power fuel, and we're talking about eliminating the export of coal from Canada. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to be an owner of a coal miner. Um, The U.S. is talking about getting 50% of their electrical supply from solar. Um, This also means the U.S. is going to continue to phase out coal as a primary power supply. I'm not sure I want to be an owner of industries that are exposed to a declining demand for goods and services. Um, I want to be exposed to those companies that have increasing demand. Now, you you get people talking about valuations, and in the next segment, I'd like to go into a little bit of math, if that isn't too bad, too difficult for the audience. (laughs) It is Saturday night, but uh, I think we can handle a little bit of math, eh, Jack? It is back to school. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are talking with Sandy McIntyre. Uh, he's a student of the market, 40 years of experience on Bay Street, uh, a philanthropist, uh, a brilliant individual, a man with a lot of heart, uh, and a man that uh, Jack and I can relate to because uh, we, we agree uh, with his process. We, we do tend to gravitate towards like-minded individuals uh, in this uh, business. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, we're talking about music at the uh, onset uh, of the show and about uh, style uh, versus egos and buying into a process, which is what the Rolling Stones did. Um, Neil Young uh, uh, was being courted by David Geffen uh, to uh, sign uh, to his label uh, for two records. And Neil Young, after producing a, a number of classic records, decided to go along with David. And uh, after he signed with David, he produced two records but they were quite different. They were actually rockabilly. Uh, David said, this isn't what I purchased. And uh, David was coerced by his legal team to sue Neil Young for not producing, quote-unquote, Neil Young records. 
completely laughable. And to this day, David Graff definitely still regrets uh, suing Neil Young. But hey, that was his uh, legal advice received. So be careful, my friends, when you pivot too far from your process in life because it could get you into some trouble. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Get right back with uh, Sandy McIntyre, a good friend of ours and a veteran of Bay Street. Uh, we are talking about the markets, talking about style, and we're talking about substance as well. It's a show about money. We want you to have more of it. You stay tuned now. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Welcome back, my friends. I want to paint it black. Eh? That's what income statements are all about. A good income statement is painted black. No red. You don't want red ink on financial statements. We're going to talk a little bit of math. Don't run away. Turn up your radio. You know, it's business. You want to have some money, you got to do some basic, basic math. And uh, we have the professor on, Mr. Sandy McIntyre. Uh, like, what a delight and what a treat to have a, a veteran of Bay Street to share with us some of his mathematical genius. It's not complicated stuff. So over to you, Sandy. you got about five minutes to give us your math lesson and stuff that we need to know uh, when it comes to uh, valuing businesses. Okay. Um, I call it the law of small numbers. Um, the key concept is compound interest and how different interest rates can massively change your outcome. If you grow your household income at two and a half percent, you're going to double your income in slightly north of uh, 30 years. If you grow your household expenses at 5%, you're going to double your liabilities in something pushing, you know, 27, 28 years. I call that bad math. Um, The S&P 500 is an index that has accurate data going back to 1954. Don't trust anything below the, before the early fifties. It's all reconstructions. It's growing its earnings at a compound annual rate of 7% over that um, 68-year time frame. And I'm willing to bet that it's going to continue to grow its earnings at roughly 7% over the next 40, 50 years. Now, individual businesses will disappear. Individual businesses will appear. You know, Jeff Bezos was in high school 20 years ago around uh, to uh, around um, 9-11 um, and yeah, he's, he's running just one of the most extraordinary businesses on the planet. So what happens when you buy that income stream? Well, today I go out and I pay 25 times earnings to buy that income stream. So that's a 4% earnings yield. And I expect my earnings will double over um, roughly a 10-year period. Uh, So my future earnings will be an 8% earnings yield. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because your costs are going up. So you want your income to go up to match your costs. Now, 
I can go and buy something really safe and put my money into a money market account, and my earnings yield is about 40 basis points. Inflation's north of two. So I, I'm losing money when I leave my money in a money market account. I can give my money to the government of Canada to use for 10 years. I'll get my money back. But we're targeting 2% inflation. I'm getting 1.2% on my interest rate. So I'm getting a negative current yield. People don't think about PEs for bonds, but what am I paying for that security? Hmm. Um, a 1.2 interest rate is effectively an 85 PE. <laughs> and I can buy the best companies on the planet for 25 times earnings, a third of the price. I don't find the stock market mispriced in a world of extraordinarily low interest rates. I do find individual securities mispriced. I always pay for what I call free cash flow, money that can come back to me. We're speaking with Sandy McIntyre. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Class is almost over. Sandy, uh, as always, a real pleasure to have you at the front of the class giving us your uh, tutorial there on mathematics. But uh, again, I'm going to sum it up. Uh, stocks over bonds, um, be an owner, not a lender uh, at this stage of the game. One day, interest rates will be higher significantly. Uh, the story will be different. Uh, and of course, we will be there to help guide you through that period of time. But right now, low rates means low position in bonds, overweight your position in quality companies. Uh, be patient, uh, decades in terms of time horizon. And yes, you will be just fine. I want to wish you all a great weekend. Jack, as always, Mr. Jack Hartle, great job. Uh, please, if you have any questions, no question too big, no question too small. We answer them all. It's WolfgangKlein.com, TheWolfOnBayStreet.com. You have a great weekend. We'll be back with you next Saturday right here on Global News Radio 640 in Toronto. <laughs> You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.